Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets, songwriters, and artists, including Olivia Gatwood, Safia El Hilo, Dana Joya, and many more. We also feature periodic submitted poetry episodes. Visit viewlesswings.com to submit your original poetry. I'm your host, James Moorhead, Poet Laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas, Portraits of Red and Gray, and The Plague Doctor. Hit subscribe and follow me on Instagram or threads at Viewless Wings. Carol Guess is the author of numerous books of poetry and prose, including Doll Studies, Forensics, and Tinderbox Lawn. Forthcoming books include a short story collection, Sleep Tight Satellite, Tupelo Press, and a hybrid poetry collection, Infodemic, Black Lawrence Press. A frequent collaborator, she writes across genres and illuminates historically marginalized material. In 2014, she was awarded the Philolexian Award for Distinguished Literary Achievement by Columbia University. She is Professor of English at Western Washington University, where she teaches queer literature and creative writing. Carol, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Very excited to talk about your book. I was sent an advanced copy of Sleep Tight Satellite by Tupelo Press. And since this podcast is anchored on poetry, I wasn't sure what to expect because at a glance, the book appears to be prose. But then I started reading. The book opens with Mock City, and I was immediately drawn in and hooked with lines such as, the view from your office window is an advertisement shaped like a suitcase, seams leaking smoke spelling report unattended luggage, and you know it's over when your girlfriend gives you back your gun safe. I don't laugh, and then we're sleeping. Your gun is in the safe. The safe is in the closet. The closet is in the bedroom. The bedroom is in my house. The style of writing in the book is immediately set. The narrative pace, the strangeness. What was your approach for deciding how to open this book, given the importance of setting that tone and style? That's a great question. That's so intuitive because the first story, Mock City, um, at one point I was trying to turn it into a novel. And I find novels to be the hardest form for me as a poet who's masquerading as a fiction writer. <laughs> um, the, the length and continuity of the novel form is very difficult. But I knew that that story set the tone, the feeling of fear, almost paranoia, but justifiable paranoia living in an America that is always shadowed by gun violence. And I wanted that to be the first thing the reader had to grapple with. Um, so that was always going to be the beginning. Oh, that's fascinating that that was the starting point of a novel that turned into something mm -hmm. completely different. Uh, it makes total yeah. sense now thinking about it again. Well, Sleep Tight Satellite isn't entirely prose poetry. And it isn't a collection of traditional short stories. I'd consider a, a piece of etymology to be poetry. Foxes, a play in one act, is exactly that, a one-act play that could be performed, theoretically. Uh, the Lesbians Who Did Everything Right, love that title, is closest to the form of a short story. The back cover classifies the book as hybrid fiction. What was your approach to choosing forms when writing this book? And, and how would you define hybrid fiction for someone who hasn't heard that term before? 
Oh, those are great questions. So hybrid, I mean, I think we're using that now as a sort of umbrella term to mean anything that doesn't fit squarely in one category. So, you know, lots of things are, are hybrid and I guess it's hybrid fiction because I'm not writing I'm not writing in lineation, so they're not lineated poems, but you're exactly right. Epistemology is really a poem. There are pieces in this collection that were originally part of a sort of a failed poetry collection that I dismantled and reappropriated. Um, Foxes was exactly a play. It was always a play. The Lesbians Who Did Everything Right was always a story. So hybrid can mean either an individual piece crossing genre lines or the collection as a whole. Right. Well, th that connects to this next question. Is the vignettes you've crafted in this book are in many ways connected themes of the arcs in a relationship, the backdrop of the pandemic quarantine and isolation? Yet the individual pieces in many cases have been published individually and stand on their own like a traditional collection of poetry or short stories. When crafting the book, how did you approach revisiting and adapting pieces to work in the context of a book that does have loose threads connected through it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's funny because a lot of the pieces were written um, as connected from the beginning. I really envisioned this community of characters who are definitely fictional. They're not, they're not me, they're not my friends, but their lives look a little bit like my chosen family in Seattle. And um, sometimes after I wrote a story, I would think, okay, well, there was a minor character in that story. I wonder what that minor character's story is. And then I would sort of branch off. So they, they sort of wrote themselves that way. There were some pieces that I added into the collection once it got picked up like Foxes, which was its own thing, and a couple of the pieces that were really poems, but I kind of slid them in um, because they fit thematically. Well, Sleep Type Satellite also employs sharp, tight comedic elements and forms. Alternative teaching modalities in hell is one example where you write, Magic, M-A-C. While performing magic tricks such as pulling rabbits out of hats and sawing adjuncts in half, Tenure-track faculty will invite audience participation in the form of pop quizzes. Students giving wrong answers are invited to disappear in a cloud of smoke. Love that. Uh, how did you approach interleaving humor into this collection? Humor is extremely hard, and I brought that up in multiple interviews. Alongside pieces including Places We Wait for the Names of the Dead, which tackle heavier subject matter. How did you use humor as a tool? Oh, I love that question. And it really actually means a lot to me that you noticed the humor and that you're you're sort of focusing on it. I think that comes from my family. My father, who I was very close to, who passed away about 15 years ago, was the funniest person I've ever met. But his humor was rooted in growing up in um, kind of small town, deep south, where a lot of, you know, he saw a lot of difficult things and didn't shy away from talking about them, but he always couched them in a kind of, you know, a kind of ironic humor that retained some sense of humanity because humor can be a negative thing. It can mm -hmm. diminish the humanity of the subjects you're looking at. So I tried to always keep compassion at the forefront because I'm writing about, you know, really painful contemporary topics, um, but humor is the natural way that I see things. I think that's what makes humor so hard is it can veer to being 
um, oppressive or it can veer to being enlightening and getting that balance right and still being funny. If it's humor, it does need to be funny at the core, but how you achieve that funniness is a really tricky balance. So yeah, I was I, I thought there was some wonderful uh, humoric elements throughout the book. Well, the arc of relationship is another thread connecting many of the pieces in this collection. The excitement and anticipation of a first meeting, the exhilaration of falling in love, the ache of separation, the pain of breaking up. In sunset pretends its heart is on fire, you write. This time the words hit Ben with full force. He opened his mouth, but no sound came out. He stood rooted to the floor while Aster looked at her fingernails. Right now they were pink, with white at the tips. Ben thought about her hands, how much he loved to hold them, how much he loved looking at the wedding ring on her finger, how his wedding ring felt like a part of his body. He never took it off, not even at the gym. So you've mentioned that these are fictional characters. What role does your lived experience play in crafting fiction? And given the very personal nature of many of the pieces in this collection, how do you approach incorporating, if at all, your lived experiences into fiction? Yeah, another great question. I appreciate the way you're asking that too. That passage that you pulled out does feel like lived experience because I'm divorced. So I do feel like that's something I think as you were reading those words, I thought, oh, yes, <laughs> I remember that feeling. But it's funny. I don't know if you find this in your own work, but the things that people pull out and assume are my lived experience are often not. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it, it's often that I'll take a feeling like that grief around divorce and I'll transpose it on a character like Ben, who has nothing to do with me or Aster, who has nothing to do with me. Um, and then it transmutes. So there's always personal experience at the core, but I try to create characters who are different enough from me and my, you know, my family, my friends, my partner. I try to create people in in print who are different enough that their reactions surprise even me Mm -hmm. and that I can take the characters in directions that I would never go. I think that's almost like the, a a poet's skill is to find the core of the emotion and wrap words around it. And not necessarily those words have anything directly to do with your own experience, but the emotion does. And that's, uh, it's cool that that's, that was the, the connection there. Um, Well, short stories are incredibly challenging to write well. Alice Munro immediately comes to mind as an expert crafter of short stories. Uh, Appropriate since I'm wearing a Canada uh, shirt right now. (laughs) I hadn't thought about that, but yes. Um, What advice do you have for poets who are thinking of stretching themselves and trying more prosaic forms? Although I suppose novelists will, will believe they'd stretch themselves to write poetry. So it goes both ways. It does. It really does. I think um, allowing yourself to write short. When I first started writing fiction, because I started out as a poet, and then I started writing fiction, I felt this obligation to produce a lot of words, because that's what I thought a fiction writer did. I thought they just made a lot of words. Um, But I'm most comfortable in the short story form when every paragraph, I treat every paragraph like a poem, and I take the time the paragraph needs to be a poem. Um, And I want the reader to have an experience of reading almost like a whole poetry collection in a short story. That's the goal. I may not always achieve that. So I think, you know, allowing yourself to continue in a compressed form, a lyrical form, um, and just being comfortable with that. 
Well, I think in my experience, poets are wonderful writers of prose. Michael Landace is, a, is a, someone I've mentioned in multiple podcasts, just incredible writer of poetry and prose. Uh, because of how poetry, just as you said, demands attention to every word, phrase, and line, what have you learned about your poetry from writing prose that has poetic elements? Oh, oh I wouldn't have thought of that question. Um, I think... I've always thought of myself as a sound-based poet, a poet who doesn't dwell in narrative, a poet playing with language and, you know, sort of more experimental forms. But when I actually look at my poems, they're narrative. So I think what I learned is that I don't know myself as a poet as well as I thought I did. And writing fiction kind of lets me re-see that narrative bent as a really positive thing. Yeah, no, definitely writing a, you know, a short story or a novel, there, there does need to be some sort of beginning, middle, arc, end, or you're mm -hmm. going to frustrate the heck out of the reader unless it's just the first of a, multiple books in a series, whereas poetry is a beginning, middle, and an opening and, and, and shouldn't really have an explicit end. So, yes, it does require thinking a different way. Eventually, maybe I'll write short stories. I cannot ever, I cannot imagine trying to tackle a novel, but who knows, maybe years from now. <laughs> I think you will. <laughs> yeah. When writing poetry, I usually start by just writing images, phrases, and worry about what the poem will become and the form it will take much later. Uh, listening to interviews with authors of short stories and novels, the approach appears to be much different. There needs to be a plan, a map, you know, extreme cases with Lord of the Rings, uh, things like that, uh, worked out in advance in addition to just writing and seeing where the writing takes you. In writing the longer pieces in this book, that are in the form of short stories, what role did just writing play and what role did having a plan mapped out in advance play? Oh, I think that's a flaw of mine as a fiction writer. I cannot map anything out. I cannot. And if I try to, the story goes awry mm. and it gets away from me or it gets really boring and dutiful. So I think I'm always writing in that poetic mode, the way you were describing it. Exactly. I'm moving from image to image and sound to sound and the characters are surprising me and sometimes I get to the end and you know I had no idea that was going to happen so yeah and I have definitely read uh, interviews with authors that somehow managed to take that same approach with the length of a novel which amazes me although it probably results in a lot of editing <laughs> I, get... I can't do it for the novel I just I have tried and I can't do it <laughs> Well, in part, and you've, you've hinted at this earlier, but in parts of the U.S. and around the world, despite advances, in this case, in LGBTQ plus rights, governments are enacting legislation in an attempt to curtail education in this area or, or even make uh, illegal things that used to be legal. In your experience as a professor teaching queer literature at Western Washington University, what have you learned about the mindset behind attempts to silence queer voices and what queer voices would you like to put in the spotlight and encourage listeners of this podcast to seek out? Oh, that's fantastic. Well, um, let's see. That's two. That's multiple questions, and they're all really important. I think that, you know, attempts to oppress others, dominate others, restrict, restrain, uh, do violence against always comes from fear. And I think that education is what will get at that fear. And so attempts at censorship at things like we're seeing with DeSantis in Florida, trying to um, change the curriculum, that's 
the most terrifying thing to me because if people aren't educated about human differences and human complexity, there may be fear and that fear snowballs and becomes violence. Um, as for voices that I wanna highlight, I know that some of the authors I'm gonna be teaching this fall in my class are Denez Smith, uh, Natalie Diaz, Richard Sykin, Kelly Weber, um, but there are so many contemporary queer writers right now. I usually choose contemporary writers so that my students can follow them on social media. Sometimes students will reach out or, you know, have the opportunity to hear someone reading in public um, or write to them. Yeah. I think that uh, you just brought out a, an important point about the importance of teaching contemporary writers where when I was in 10th grade and I was turned on to poetry years and years ago, it was more about something I could relate to. But now it is actually a person you can connect to through social media. Yes. And that is a really interesting insight that the, the motivation to, to incorporate contemporary voices is the students can connect with them in an actual real way and yes. that they couldn't have in the past in any practical way. So I, I love that. I love that idea. Well, one more uh, question before I turn the mic over to you and building on that that last question what have you learned from students taking classes such as queer literature in particular those students who may have entered the class without much thought about the class they're taking or exposure to queer writers in the past I've learned that a lot of my students know more than I do <laughs> when I started teaching this topic 25 years ago, there was a sense that I knew something and I had something to offer that a lot of students, whether they were queer or straight or, or you know, in some kind of indecisive, wonderful gray area, it, it didn't matter. There was something I knew that they didn't and I was offering it. And that is not true anymore. Students come into the classroom and when I start giving a little backdrop on LGBTQ history. They raise their hands, they say that's wrong or you're leaving this out. And so I think what I'm learning is that I have to listen to them more. And I think that the younger generation is so much more knowledgeable about queer history than I ever imagined. And they're also changing that history and they're um, revolutionizing it. The whole move towards um, uh, transgender rights and also a sort of gender revolution that's that was always there but that has emerged full force in the last you know decade two decades I'm just learning from my students and listening to them and um, I'm just trying to make a space for them to share what they know and I'm hoping that a lot of this backlash we're seeing is the last gasp uh, fear-based response to this extraordinary, up, uh, you know, groundswell that comes from the, uh, especially Gen Z, um, who are anything but lazy and uh, sort of sitting on their hands. They are extremely vocal and active. Um, wonderful. Well, now I'm going to turn the mic over to you to read a selection from Sleep Tight Satellite. Okay, I'm going to read a piece called Places We Wait for the Names of the Dead. And um, it includes a lot of the main themes of the collection, gun violence, um, the fraying of social community, um, education. Uh, yeah, so it's a, a short, kind of like a prose poem. 
places we wait for the names of the dead. We wait in the lobby of the Holiday Inn. We wait in the parking lot outside the Burger King drive-thru. We wait in the garden behind the temple. We wait in the firehouse one block from the school because the bodies are still inside the school. Sometimes they mispronounce our dead. Sometimes we are the dead and we wait also for our names to be called. When we are the living waiting for the dead, we die in the waiting at the Holiday Inn. When we are bodies in the school, we are hiding inside the storage closet. Sometimes they name the shooter before the names of our dead. Sometimes they name the shooter and he is our son. When we clean the blood, we wear suits that cover our clothing. When we take off the suits, we have clothes on underneath and we drive home. Sometimes they make us wait all night. During the night, they hold our dead in their arms and turn the bodies carefully for clues. They mark the entrance and exit of the bullets. When the cameras arrive, they take the last words of the dead. When we are the dead, we wait by the pool of the hotel. When we are the dead, we watch the movie again in the empty theater. When we are the living and we hear the names, we say the names out loud. We say the names out loud, but no one comes. We say the names out loud, but no one comes. So we wait in the lobby of the Holiday Inn. Such a powerful subject that all of us can relate to. And yet you convey it with such softness and using repetition. So my question for you is, uh, I, especially at open mics, I will hear poets that are angry about something and the anger just overwhelms completely the poetry or the prose and you it's harder to hear the underlying uh, message or the underlying emotion so uh, t- take me through the editing process for getting the balance right between the power and emotion while not losing the art in the process yeah That's so fascinating, thinking about it that way, because there are definitely pieces in this book where I was angry. Um, Some of the ones about teaching, I was really angry when I was writing them. Um, But I wasn't angry at all writing this. I was just so sad. I mean, I don't even remember at this point. We've all lost track. Um, I don't remember which of the many, 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 many shootings this was prompted by, but I know that I picked up the paper and read about yet another shooting. And I was just so sad and also fearful as a teacher. I'm scared. I walk into the classroom sometimes and look around and think where, you know, how will I get my students out of this room if someone starts shooting? And I think though that the softness and the repetition um, come from the tools of poetry. It's the great gift that poetry gives us that poetry can soften things and that using repetition and using, this isn't a formal poem, but it almost feels formal. It almost feels like a broken Villanelle or Sestina because Mm -hmm. there's this sort of um, repetition of words, but also lines and phrases. And I think that kind of, as you use the word soften, it does soften some of the intensity of the piece. And I want people to read my work. I don't want it to be harsh in a way that someone 
just has to put it down, has to turn yeah. away from. Ultimately, this is an elegy, and it's something I can imagine saying as a kind of, I don't know, I, I'm not a religious person, but I wanted it to feel a little like a prayer, a prayer for the dead. So, yeah. No, I thought it was very effective. It reminded me of like, I've also been very, I used to lived half my life in Canada where moving to the States, I had a number of things that I was uh, uneasy about. Even though I was born here, coming back, I was, there were, and one of them was gun violence. And yeah, I wrote a poem after one one of many shootings. I think it was called Memories of a Bullet, where it was just thinking of the bullet as a thing that has a memory and uh, and just kept it really simple. And, and I actually shared it with my dad and he it got him so, it hit him so hard that uh, he was just, you know, and it wasn't, then there was nothing really bombastic about it at all. It was just straightforward. Anyway, so I thought that was really that's very effective. So finally, what are you working on now? Well, I have an idea for a novel. And so I think what I would say that I'm doing now is avoiding it. <laughs> uh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting scared from this novel that is is kind of like out there. I know what the character, I know the main character, and I know the the sort of theme. But as I mentioned in the beginning, for me, writing a novel is is not a whole lot of fun and it's the it's the scariest thing. So I'm trying to decide, I guess. I'm trying to have integrity about whether it really is a novel and I need to move towards it and not run away from it. Or as with um, Mock City, you know, I realized ultimately that it didn't have to be a novel, that I could accomplish what I wanted by being in the form that I feel comfortable in, which is shorter forms. So I'm in the existential dread part. <laughs> Well, just to finish where we started, for the listeners who are curious about this book, I encourage you to pop by a bookstore, start reading Mock City. I guarantee you will finish it and then you'll buy the book. Guaranteed. It just sucks you right in like a vortex. You can't let go. It's awesome. Well, Carol, thank you so much for sharing your writing and your voice on the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast today. Thank you so much. It, it was just a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. Wonderful. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Instagram, threads, and YouTube at Viewless Wings. Hit subscribe to be notified of every episode of the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast and spread the word with your poetry community.